Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, so I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to After Work Drinks, your weekly dose of news, pop culture and Pinot Noir, brought to you by magazine editors and best friends, Isabel Truman and Grace O'Neill. G'day. <laughs> no, I hate g'day. Same, that didn't work. That went down like a lead balloon. I felt it. I also the other day was thinking about how we say best friends and it makes me feel like I'm 18. I, I know, because sometimes when I'm sending emails, I'm like, Izzy is my best friend and I'm like, this is not professional. No. <laughs> it's not a way to conduct yourself professionally. Are you a fucking teenager? Literally. I feel like people don't have best friends when they grow up. But what else do you say? Because you can't say friends. It's just that's implied if you're going to start a podcast together. Yeah. It doesn't show that we're soulmates if you just say friends. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I saw you refer to me as your close friend in one email. Or my yeah. good friend. Yeah. yeah. I've been really experimenting. <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a while. <laughs> my good, my close friend, my acquaintance. I know. I need to. I, it's been irking me. Yeah, I, I agree, actually. We'll have a brainstorm. Sorry, guys, to loop you in. Any thoughts, please? <laughs> let us know. Thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, please let us know. Actually, on that topic, I wanted to say that I want to do a little Instagram check-in with everyone because we did it a while ago where we put up questions and just said, what do you want more of from us? What do you want less of from us? What topics do you want us to cover? Any feedback, blah, blah, blah. So I'll do it again on Instagram stories because we got a great response and basically then you guys just help us with upcoming topics. Yeah, exactly. Because we're just talking in a room. Like we're both just sitting on our beds now on Skype. We don't we know what we think you love, but if there's some random specific thing, just send us a DM. Yeah. Keep it off the reviews. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it on Instagram stories this week. So also follow us at, there, please. At After Work Drinks Podcast. I loved so much our interview with Nesta and our new series, and we've had such amazing feedback. If you haven't listened to it yet, I hate 
plugging ourselves. I feel like I sound like a car salesman. But if you haven't listened to it yet, she is incredible. She opens up about moving to LA and the loneliness she felt there, bouts of depression, um, ambition, working in Hollywood in such a competitive industry and trying to kind of stay true to yourself and not freak out when every when you walk into a room and there's a hundred girls that look the exact same as you going for the exact same part as you. It's just such an interesting chat. And even just talking to someone who's been coming up through Hollywood during all this Mm -hmm. huge shift in Hollywood as a young woman and to hear her talk really candidly about how much that actually has changed and how much feels like tokenism versus how much feels like substantial change. It's just a really, really, really good conversation. Not bragging about us bragging about how amazing she is i know she's so great and it's funny when you talk to her because she's so lovely and so down to earth and everyone who's listened has sent us a message saying that it was such an incredible chat and that she's so great and you kind of forget that she's also fucking huge like she's literally just starring alongside jason Momoa in apple tv's first ever original series and she's such a badass in it and then she's in this massive upcoming movie and yeah, I just feel like she's going to be really famous. But then the best part is that she's so fucking cool. So that's our only recommendation this week. <laughs> yeah. So what else have you been doing this week, if anything? I have been... I watched Michelle Obama's Becoming documentary on Netflix, which I was so excited for. Mm-hmm. Um, it was good. I would have done it differently. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Obamas and a Netflix deal. Are you listening, Michelle? The book was, as everyone knows, like one of my favorite books I read last year. It's so, 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 so good for anyone who hasn't read it. And I was expecting the documentary to kind of be in a similar vein where it follows from her childhood. Because basically her book split up into three parts where it's her childhood and it's kind of before she went Barack. And then it's her meeting Barack and their relationship and them going to, you like, well, her going to uni, then her meeting Barack and then their relationship and then it goes into the presidency. So it's split in kind of a timeline like that and it's super interesting. But this kind of becoming was more about her book tour and it kind of flicked back and forth between her talking about other things. I don't know. It was, re- it was still worth a watch, but it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, Michelle. Yeah, okay. And then I have been watching Hollywood, which we talked about on Nesta's episode, which is Ryan Murphy's new Netflix show about Hollywood in the 40s, I think. And it's good. <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> it's happening. And I watched it. Yeah, yeah. And Insecure. Okay. And now I'm up to date, so I'm pissed off. That's quick. Isn't there four seasons? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There is. (laughs) Okay, I've got some catching up to do. One thing that I did want to talk to you about was your feelings on the whole Adele situation because we actually haven't spoken about that directly yet to each other. Yeah, so everyone going on about her weight. I'm confused because her weight, everyone started talking about her weight maybe like four months ago at Christmas and then has it just flared back up again? She's just shared a photo for her birthday. Oh, Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um. I just think it is just unnecessary. I just don't... Like, I didn't want to talk about it in the podcast because I didn't want to talk about it at all. 
But yeah. I feel like it's also kind of disingenuous to act like it's not kind of a problem that everyone's congratulating her more for losing weight than they did for her winning an Oscar. Yeah, you know? I know. It's also just such a thing, I think, that we will get to eventually where people just realize that weight isn't something to talk about at all. It's like now we've gotten to that point with, well, you'd hope we've gotten to that point with um, – motherhood and pregnancies and whether people want children or not it's a sensitive topic whereas I feel like back in the day people probably wouldn't have realized that it was so sensitive and they wouldn't have realized that maybe there's things going on in the background that no one knows about and now I would never ask a woman you know when are you gonna have a baby you're gonna get married and have a baby yeah, yeah totally and I think that weight is slowly getting that way especially because of how many people are just like this is so fucking stupid to even be talking about this like who fucking knows what's going on in her life she might have lost a heap of weight because she's bloody depressed or she might have lost a heap of weight because she's really happy and she's proud of it and she's doesn't mind people congratulating on her her on it but we just don't know anything so until she talks about it I just don't think anyone should be yeah I don't think it's just not relevant to anyone and that kind of bleeds into an interview we both loved this week with Jamila Jamil and Roxanne Gay, whatever. <laughs> so us. <laughs> happening every week, just deal with it. But but it was amazing timing. The whole point of I Way is obviously about discussing conversations about women's bodies and women's size and shame and cultural conversations about that. But Roxanne Gay, in her book Hunger especially, has talked so much about these connotations we make between weight and health or body size and health that have no real grounding in science and how people suddenly what was the phrase they used Uh, Um, um, concern trolling yeah concern trolling where people sort of pretend that it's out of some massive concern for public health that they care whether there's size diversity on magazine covers or on instagram or whatnot and that we talked about this in the past, but just this idea that thin equals, equals healthy. Unhealthy. Yeah, and fat yeah. equals unhealthy is just the most unhelpful idea and it's a myth. Yeah, it's just that article that I'm bloody obsessed with, with Huffington Post, which I'm going to link again in our show notes because it was just the most insightful article I've ever read about the obesity epidemic in the States and and it basically it's called everything you know about obesity is a myth. I think it's like a, it's such a a feminist issue. Obviously body image is not a purely feminist issue and obviously there are a, a lot of men in the world who feel a huge amount of pressure to live up to physical standards, but I think that they're inherently in this argument about weight is a question about being offended at women taking up a lot of physical space in the world and the expectation being that every woman should be striving to take up as little place as possible is kind of the cultural messaging to it. And Mm. the reason the Adele thing is so, I guess, frustrating is that there are certain things for women that are still just going to be seen as bigger achievements than the achievements that we value in men no matter what, like losing a lot of weight, getting married, having a kid, they still hold this like cultural reverence for women that like no actual awards or accolades can compare to. You know what I mean? And it could not be more obvious 
thin with Adele because she's done literally yeah. everything. She's beat yeah. out Beyonce for like Grammys. It's crazy, you know? Yeah. And the fact that this is, it, I feel like this is being discussed just as much, if not more, as most of the awards she's won is just like such a troubling um, indication of how messed up we still all are about body image. I know. Well, didn't we talk about it? We talked about it recently on the podcast, Beanie Feldstein's uh, article for Refinery29, which she was like, please stop congratulating me on my weight loss. She was like, I got to a point where I was happy in my body and I didn't think about weight. And I lost a whole bunch of weight because I was doing a Broadway show, which meant I was dancing for eight hours straight every single day. And then I came back to LA and everyone was congratulating me on my weight as if I wasn't okay beforehand as if that was you know i'm i'm so much better now it's all about my body what 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 did i look like before it's just yeah the insinuation when you congratulate someone is that it was a problem before and that they've solved the problem yeah the thing is that people are are well-intentioned when they say things because we live in a society that puts a lot of pressure on people to look a certain way so we're aware of how how difficult it can be or must be to put your body through that. So I think that's the insinuation is that you've worked hard for it, but it's just, we never know what's going on behind the scenes and the messaging sent to women in the entertainment industry is really, really damaging. And I just think it's just, yeah, just never congratulate someone for losing weight. That's just blanket rule. (laughs) Just don't go there. Yeah. So since we've started this podcast, basically the one question we get asked all of the time, and actually both of us since we started our careers get asked this all the time, podcast or not, about how we got into magazines, how we started our career, what it's like in magazines, how someone else can get into magazines. And we haven't really talked about it on the podcast before because um, I guess, well, for starters, both of us were still working full time at the time of launching our podcast. And then since we've gone freelance, it just hadn't really come up as a topic. But this week seems like the perfect time because obviously all industries are so severely impacted by COVID-19, but print is kind of... Well, people can't shoot. People physically can't shoot content for magazines. So like people just can't even populate the pages of a magazine at the moment. Yeah. So it has been like tough on our industry, tough on our friends, tough on... A lot of people we know, um, Bauer shut down completely in New Zealand, which is really sad. And a lot of my friends lost their jobs. Uh, There's magazines put on hold right now in Australia because obviously you can't get out and shoot content and you can't do anything to make a physical product. And it's affected us, obviously. Like we've lost a huge amount of freelance work and a lot of things that were in the pipeline and stuff like that. Like it's had a really like tangible knock-on effect to most people we know. Yeah. So in that spirit, we just wanted to do a little bit of an ode to the industry that we love that has brought us Mm -hmm. and all of you, I'm sure, listening so much joy. I think magazines are the first place that people, that young women remember finding something that felt like-minded or a place where they could kind of learn about women that were different to them or kind of try and understand themselves or, you know, we joked about... Cleo and Cosmo and Dolly Doctor and all of that stuff, but that stuff was very essential um, early literature for every teenager in Australia. And we obviously, working in magazines, have just such a huge reverence for fantastic journalism and for beautiful fashion imagery and editorials and beauty content. And 
everything. So this is really something that we wanted to talk about and celebrate. And we thought, who better to talk to than one of Britain's most formidable and impressive editors. So we are very excited today to be talking to Alexandra Shulman, CBE. Uh, Alexandra was the longest serving editor in the history of British Vogue. She was there for 25 years starting in 1992 and finishing in 2017. In that time, she increased circulation to 200,000. She's written four books, including Vogue, My Diary of Vogue's 100th Year, and her recently released memoir, Clothes and Other Things That Matter, which is already a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, So yeah, we were absolutely stoked to get to chat to her. She has shot covers with Princess Diana. She had a big, big... Part to play, I would say, in the royal wedding of Kate Middleton and Prince William, which we chat to her about. And also she worked at Tatler under Tina Brown during like such an iconic, what we think of as such era. an iconic era for magazines. Yeah. And just kind of... It's literally the reason we wanted to get into magazines is this era and these people. Yeah, exactly. What is your, just to go down memory lane for a minute, What was what's your like early magazine memories? What what made you want to get into it? Um, I was less of a fashion girl than you in the sense that I always read Vogue, obviously, but I wasn't really into all of the it was I was more about the I was more about the articles than I am about the fashion shoots. And so I would read Vogue, but I would read I mean, when I was super young, it was like it was yeah, it was your dolly, it was your Cleo, it was your girlfriend, then I moved to Vogue and Vanity Fair. I, I can't really remember what my first ever experience with magazines was, but I'm assuming it was. I think it was that. What's that little one? That little total girl. Was it like seventeen? A total girl. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that was. Just I Australia. remember having those. Yeah, I remember having something like that. And Teen Vogue was Teen Vogue really small at one point. I think so. I remember having those. Um, and then yeah, obviously because I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um. But I always loved writing, I always loved reading, and all of that, and then it just was one of those things where it just made complete sense to study journalism, and then obviously the funnest thing that I could think of in the history of the world would be working at a magazine like Vogue. Yeah, I started a magazine when I was 10 years old with my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, were you the editor? Yeah, and it was it. We printed it on A4 paper and folded it and and stapled it and took it out to our classmates. And it was insane. It had like crosswords and it was about Neopets <laughs> and it was oh crazy. My God, I love that. And a, a mum at the school um, complained and was like, "It's not fair that Grace gets to have a magazine and my daughter doesn't get to have one." And then the school made it illegal. And then. Um, they try to create a school one and it was just boring. So that was my first That's so editorship. Funny. But yeah, no, I I was kind of the same as you where I didn't religiously read magazines at all. It wasn't until I started at working at L where on my first day, because it had just opened, on my first day as an intern, the features editor was like, Can you just write this page? Because it was they just started and it had that like amazing kind of energetic startup-y vibe of mm. just pulling things together and getting it to work and um i wrote an article and it went into the magazine like in full with my little like byline on it 
on on my first or second day it was just crazy and I was so excited because I just felt I'd always thought that the only way that you would have a career in a magazine would be to sit and intern for five years and slowly work your way up and fetch the water for the first two years and have no one notice you and then do you know what I mean like it just felt like Mm. I'm I'm such an impatient person that it just felt like it wasn't yeah my career moved really quickly like that as well where I got um so I'd kind of I'd studied journalism and then I'd gone traveling and then while I was traveling so I was in Greece with my friend Hannah we're basically on this honeymoon we were literally the only people who weren't a couple on Santorini (laughs) (laughs) and uh my stepdad had been sick but he had lung cancer and then right before we left he got completely cleared of anything and so I was like amazing let's go on this trip and then I was going to move to London I was like, amazing, let's go on this trip. I had, like, sorted moving to London, all of these things. And then um, when we were in Greece, mum called me and she said they'd been trying to not tell me, but he had three brain tumours and was really sick. And so I caught a flight home from Greece that night and flew back to Hawke's Bay and looked after him for six months. And then he passed away. And as we said on the Nesta episode, while he was sick, I was kind of like, Obviously, I was there looking after him, and I was so happy to be there, um, even though it was, like, the most full-on fucking time ever. Mm. And then I was like, God, what am I going to do? Because I'm suddenly, like, 23 or whatever, and I'm living at home in Hawke's Bay when I had, like, a visa in London. My two friends who I was with moved to London. Um, but it just seems, like, so crazy to go and do that right now. And then a job popped up for um, this New Zealand magazine called Remix, and it was... I think I was on Facebook and it was like they were offering an internship or like a three day a week editorial assistant role. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to apply for it because who knows? Like I might get it. It would be amazing. I've wanted to get into mags for ages. And then it moved really fast and I got the job and um, my stepdad was still really sick. He had like basically two weeks to live. And I went up to Auckland, did three days of the job, flew back because it was part time, did three days of the job, flew back to Hawke's Bay without telling them looked after him for three days, flew back to Auckland, did three days, flew back to Hawke's Bay, and then he passed away the next day. And I stayed at home for three days looking after mum and then flew back the day of the funeral and went back to work. Oh my God. Which is just absolutely hectic. And then eventually moved to Australia, which is where I met you at Harper's Bazaar and Al. Yes, and the story of how Izzy came over is insane because I think you got an email on, like, the Friday and you were in Australia at the office on the Monday, right? Yeah, yeah. So I emailed on the, like, Wednesday or something from my desk in Auckland just saying, if anyone needs any, if you need any freelancers, I would be more than happy to help. And I got a reply from Ellie, who is our friend who did an Instagram takeover for us. She was our former boss at L and Harper's Bazaar. And Ali emailed back and said, can you start Monday? And I was like, sure thing. And then went outside and called my mum and said, mum, I'm moving to Sydney this weekend. <laughs> That's the best <laughs> thing ever. But I it is, know. I think, and then just yeah. walked up to the office. So this is the thing as well. So if anyone's listening in there, um, I've said this to lots of people in Instagram DMs, and I'm sure you have as well, Izzy, but I was very uh, tenacious, probably to the point where it may have potentially aggravated some people but very enthusiastic very keen very eager very keen to do everything and be across everything and go above and beyond and I'm shocked by the fact that I worked as like a senior editor for seven years and I can count the amount of times I got cold emailed to intern 
on one hand. Mm. Yeah, me too. My email address was like really easy to find. And I just had, I never had people email and say, hey, I'm a student at this university. I'm really interested in magazine. And maybe that's, maybe people aren't as attracted to that industry as they used to be. I don't know, but it seems from the feedback we get that people are very keen. And I just think that, I don't know if it's a thing of every single thing that I've ever had happen in the industry is me going out and asking for it. You know what I mean? I never waited to get a job listing or... I cold emailed Ellie, started at Harper's Bazaar and Elle as a freelancer that Monday, worked there for whatever, six, like eight months or something and then moved to Murray Cronenstow and then here we are now. Like it just would never have happened. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a really important thing to think about because it's just everyone especially at the moment like not currently right now (laughs) at this exact moment in time this is why it's kind of bad advice to give now because don't please email any editors right now asking for (laughs) work experience obviously (laughs) but because we're going through this complicated time in the media like we really benefited from being on this trajectory where we came into magazines at a time where digital was kind of this unknown thing that people were kind of getting mm. their head around but weren't really sure about. And the prestige of the magazine was that you could road test the youngins on digital and it didn't feel as much of a risk as road testing them writing for print. So we had this amazing, amazing opportunity to write, 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 write. At some points when we were junior digital writers writing seven or eight stories per day every day, six or seven like five or six days a week it was the most amazing experience for honing our writing skills and our voice and i think that people see i mean we're really we're really open about it we talk about how we, i worked at pack and save i worked at wild Bean cafe you worked at the cinema and at ben and jerry's and we worked we've always worked hard when i started at l and i was an intern i would do i was at uni full time i was there i think three days a week And I would do a shift at L where I'd start at nine, finish at six, get get the train to a pub and then do the 6.30 to half past midnight shift at a pub. And I would do that two two or three days a week. So it was like 20 hour days. Yeah, when I started at L and Bazaar, I was still doing my old job in New Zealand. So I was doing two full-time jobs. I didn't know that. You saucy me. Yeah, only for like two weeks while they, well, for the handover period yeah but yeah it was pretty hectic and that's the thing like we worked really hard and I think you could see you could look now and see that we're going to Paris and Milan fashion weeks and doing all these really fun things but it doesn't mean we haven't slogged away to get to where we are and I think that yeah that's the other thing is I get a lot of emails as well from girls and they're like god I just don't know where to to start and this actually leads into kind of our topic of what we're going to talk about next week, which will make more sense once we do talk about it. But people come to you and say, I don't know where to start. I don't know what to do. And it just takes two seconds for them to kind of do their research on their own, find out the editor's email addresses, go on the job websites, see that there's jobs going. Sometimes I'll literally get an email from someone and um, then I'll click on, I'll go to the websites to send them the link and and then be like, there's a job going right now. Have you applied for this? And they're like, oh no. So... <laughs> I think yeah I yeah totally there was a girl honestly I don't know if you remember this there was a girl who printed out yeah I know flyers saying, yeah. of her face superimposed onto Elle magazine and handed them out in the lobby and she got a that try- was her CV right 
yeah, her CV, it was all the cover lines were like skills that she had. It was nuts. But they gave her a trial. Like, that's. Yeah. You, yeah. That's what mags need people, good people at the moment, because resources are stretched thin. Everyone's trying to figure everything out. It's actually a perfect time to come in and be really fucking good. I think Steve Martin said, like, be so good they can't ignore you. Like, that's always been my mm. ethos. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time I just had no idea about, like, the cost of things and how intense everything was. And we were doing a shoot with a really massive brand. And they were like, you need to be so, so, so careful with these shoes. Like, if the model wears them, they have to be completely taped underneath. So there's absolutely no scuffing. Nothing goes on. And I did that, but I just wasn't... I kind of, like, just shoved them back in the box. And God, did I get my fucking head blown off on the phone. Yeah. There have been mistakes along the way. Oh, yeah. Everyone's got a story, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, everyone's fucked up. Everyone's mucked up. (laughs) Everyone. It's fine. That's just part of, like, having a job. Okay, so after that hefty (laughs) introduction that went off on many tangents, we're very excited to bring you this interview with Alexandra. We are very grateful to her for coming on, and we hope you enjoy it. Hi, Alexandra. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, Firstly, we both absolutely loved your book. We ripped through it, um, and we loved the way it was structured. Can you tell us a bit about why you chose to frame it that way? Well, thanks for for speaking to me, and uh, more thanks for liking the book. (laughs) Um, Well, the structure actually was quite an interesting... I kind of fumbled my way to it because I wasn't quite sure what I was writing or how to structure it. And um, so I thought I'd start to take different items of clothing and see what came up as I kind of explored the idea. And then once I worked out that I wanted to write about my life via the clothes, then I had to try and work out actually what order to put the chapters in because every chapter goes sort of backwards and forwards. So there isn't really a a sort of chronology or a a clear narrative, I guess. So it was a bit of trial and error. Yeah, and perfect for isolation as well. I guess that was kind of a lucky (laughs) time. I think, um, although it's not great to publish a book during a period of lockdown because there are no bookshops and everything, actually this book is quite, I'm quite lucky in that it's very good for, none of us have any concentration. Everyone says they've got, you know, really concentration deficient we all thought we'd be able to you know learn how to paint or read Tolstoy or this that and the other and and none of us are managing to focus on anything for any length of time so it turns out that the very short chapters have worked quite well. So we want to go back a little bit so your mother sorry your father was a theatre critic and your mother was a magazine writer and an editor can you talk about some of your earliest memories with magazines? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I'm sitting in the flat where I was brought up, which is quite a surreal experience that my mum's still living there. And uh, all these things you can see, well, people, the re- listeners can't see, but you can, um, behind me, have all been there for 100 years and um, millions of magazines among them. So we always had magazines at home. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. 
Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Both my parents were journalists, so I was brought up with the idea that, you know, life was about newspapers and magazines, I guess. And then uh, when my mum went to work for, she edited Brides magazine in London, first of all. And so we'd go into the office and hang out there quite often after school and things like that. And then she went to work on Vogue uh, as a features editor. So then I got to spend a bit of time there. So magazines were like, you know, it's just my parents' workplace. You use clothes, as you said, to kind of navigate all the different times in your career, which kind of spanned across a very early stint in music and then across newspapers and eventually onto magazines. Um, We're obviously very well acquainted with it, but for our listeners, can you explain the trajectory that took you from finishing university to editing Vogue age 35? Uh, Yes, I left university and um, all I cared about was getting a job, you know, to earn some money. I was somebody who didn't really want to go to uni and I just wanted to to work and and be independent. So second I left university, I started to to get, it was much easier getting jobs in those days. You know, there was lots of kind of temp work around and I'd done shorthand and typing. So I could be a secretary anywhere. And I was, and uh, as it happened, my boyfriend at the time was starting an independent record label. And he asked if I'd be his PA and we agreed we'd sort of stop the relationship um, and I'd go work for him instead. Well, as you can imagine, that didn't work out very well. I was going to say that seemed doomed for disaster. (laughs) That was doomed for disaster and that that lasted a very short amount of time. But um, I then got another job in the music business because that's what I thought I wanted to work in. And um, as I recount in the book, that also was fairly short-lived. I think I was there for about five, six months, and then I got fired. So I lost my job twice in the first year of working. And um, I was just looking for work, and a friend of a friend said there was a job as a secretary to the editor on a magazine called Over 21 that no longer exists here. And so I went for that interview, and... Uh, the editor, Shirley Lowe, a wonderful woman, sadly no longer with us, said she didn't want to hire me as her secretary because she didn't think I'd be any good at it. I'd get bored. Um, but would I come in and temp until she found the perfect person? And then that one really did work out. That was kind of like a meeting. of We loved each other. And uh, I stayed there. And that was where the start of my career in magazines came about and so from there after a kind of year or two of being a secretary I obviously wanted to try and move on and I started to write little freelance pieces and then I got a job on Tatler magazine here and that 
sort of was the, the launch. So you were working in magazines and kind of the shiny heyday that made everyone in our generation want to get into magazines and now the reality is quite different. Um, yeah. Can you talk a bit about being an editor in the 80s and the 90s? Well, looking back now, we, you know, we are all aware that we did have the golden days, the golden age. Um, didn't really seem so much of a golden age at the time. I think golden age is often the things that you recognize in retrospect. Um, but, you know, I, I was particularly lucky because I was kind of about 25, 26, 27 in the mid 80s and the mid 80s in, in the UK were a real media boom time. So we started to have uh, breakfast TV was launched, new radio stations were launched, new newspapers were launched and newspapers began to get much bigger. The kind of the weekend papers that we have until recently anyway, seen with millions of sections and color supplements, all of them were launched then. So everyone needed more staff and they particularly wanted young women because they were told by the marketing teams that it, that uh, that young women were kind of growth area for their readership and therefore it had been quite a sort of male dominated area journalism but everyone was being told they should get young women in so somebody like me who had a job on quite a high profile but small circulation uh, magazine like Tatler but I was doing big interviews and things for them you know everybody noticed what I was doing I was somebody I got offered so many jobs at that time I was very lucky and um, it was hard work we all worked very hard but we you know retrospectively we played hard as well <laughs> and I always noticed the difference in my team at Vogue who just didn't seem to have the same, like we would all go out to lunch, for instance, you know, everybody went out to lunch. We had luncheon vouchers. They were like 30p or something or other, but you'd save up, you know, your week's luncheon vouchers and then you'd all go out and go and have wine and pasta and whatever once a week at lunch. And, and then you'd come back and quite often contributors would come into the magazine and they'd all be sitting talking and then everyone would open a bottle of wine at about five o'clock, six o'clock and everyone would chat and then you'd go off to a book launch or a thing that and the other. And I, think, and I really noticed that my, my team at Vogue just seemed to work much more consistently than we did throughout. There wasn't that kind of social element to to their work. Um, so that was very nice, um, very nice time. And then newspapers were, um, I was only on a newspaper for 18 months and then I went back to, to glossy magazines and I, I went back to be features editor on Vogue. And again, you know, there was this sort of great feeling of opportunity. You could kind of meet anybody you wanted to meet and, we were able to write long form because that was, uh, I think one of the things that digital uh, hasn't been good for is long form journalism uh, because everybody reads much shorter and search engines meet, you know, have different kind of demands. So if you wanted to be a writer, a journalistic writer, it was a great time then. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was lovely. And then, 
being editor of Vogue, I started in 92. Actually in the UK, there was a recession then and it was quite a difficult time. But it was an interesting time because the grunge kind of fashion and music movement was quite a big change in those areas. So you had some really meaty material to work with, which I think if you're an editor is always exciting. Well, that's actually what we wanted to touch on next was that you became editor during such a fascinating time for fashion and obviously fashion is kind of a reflection and speaks to the culture. So you spoke a bit about the recession, but what were some of the cultural factors that you think led to the change from 80s power shoulders to the grunge minimalism of the 90s? Well, I think the, the, the fact that the recession was something, I mean, we'd had an my facts may not be entirely correct here, but you know, you'd had Thatcher and Reagan and the, you know, as far as we were concerned. So you'd had these right wing governments that were part of that sort of eighties, the power shoulder thing. I mean, that made all made sense when you were talking about designing clothes for kind of Park Avenue matrons and, um, the sort of the London yuppies that indeed I was one of, you know, all starting to work in all these new office blocks, the development we had here in the Docklands with uh, lots of new offices. Um, property was a big business and uh, we had the big bang here. So there was, there was a lot of um, entrepreneurial uh, consumer development and as things always go in pendulum swings by the beginning of the 90s everything started to kind of crack in that way and we had a recession I'm not quite sure whether there was a recession in uh in the states or what drove the kind of grunge movement there but I think again you know it was the end of um the Republicans, I think the Democrats came in then. I'm not absolutely sure of my facts on on that. But fashion does follow a sort of, um, or reflect what's happening in the rest of the culture. So I think grunge was something that was a reaction to a period of excess, but also a period when... Um, a certain kind of style of perhaps of artifice and of looking very wealthy, looking very expensive, looking very polished, uh, was rejected. And this idea that what was actually interesting was a kind of a degree of reality and a more kind of um, perhaps uh, emotional attitude to, to looking at the way people dressed and the the music and the art and the films that they were creating, if that makes sense. Totally. And, and, and obviously your job as editor was then to kind of reflect that in the pages of Vogue. So can you talk a bit about some of the conversations you remember having at the time about how to reflect that changing culture in the pages of the magazine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, for me, it was very lucky because I was somebody who was much more um, aesthetically attuned to a kind of grunge culture than I was um that kind of 80s shoulder pad culture. So I was kind of in the right place at the right time for what I was interested in. And 
I always remember it's one of the, I have a very bad memory, uh, which is one of the reasons why I, I didn't write a straight sort of memoir of my time because I don't remember very much about it. But I do remember going to New York and seeing this uh, Perry Ellis show that Mark Jacobs put on, which was, you know, this definitive moment in fashion where literally it was like a kind of, you know, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. And he sent all the supermodels who previously had been this kind of glamazon striding the catwalk in, you know, tight dresses and huge hair and, you know, whether it was Naomi or Cindy or Christy or whatever. And he put them all down on the floor level with the audience in Converse sneakers and beanie hats with no makeup and just wearing these kind of slip dresses. And it looked so amazing and so different. And it seemed to me so real because they just looked like the schoolgirls that I'd always known. And Kate Moss was one of the new models. And I just remember coming out of that show and thinking, yeah, okay, so for the new season, for our March issue, we're definitely going to do a thing about this whole movement and we're going to call it London Girl and we can use Kate Moss on the cover. Interestingly, the actual outfit we put her in was a Chanel Bustier. In fact, she wasn't in a, a slip dress and a beanie hat, or so she didn't look exactly like like that. But editing Vogue was very much a um, at that point was treading a kind of tightrope between wanting to reflect that new fashion reality, but also aware of the fact that people bought Vogue for a kind of aspiration and glamour, as well as for sort of being totally on the ball fashion-wise. So that year was quite tricky because we wanted to show what was happening and we were using new photographers like Corinne Day and Jürgen Teller. But at the same time, our advertisers didn't, weren't very happy when we sort of showed kind of grungy fashion. It wasn't what they thought they were buying into. So it was a, an interesting era. Well, your shoot with Corinne Day is like, I know you did many, but yeah. the Kate Moss Corinne Day shoot that you reference in the book is still probably the most iconic fashion editorial from the 90s. Um, and you received a lot of flack from it at the time, which I, neither of us realised. Yeah, at the time, um, literally worldwide newspapers and news coverage was about, I mean, it was extraordinary because I remember the pictures being brought into me and thinking these are so beautiful. She looks so beautiful. There she is in these kind of knickers and a vest in a, you know, in some way looking actually like the background to, to anyone's flat, you know, a bare wall. And it wasn't glamorous in any way, but it wasn't so particularly downbeat. And she looked very gorgeous. And I just remember thinking these are a really interesting and beautiful set of pictures. I did not think that we were publishing something that was going to make sort of front page news across the world, which it did, because people thought that by... I think it was by portraying a sort of model in looking very much like a kind of young girl in her underwear. That was a kind of unacceptable thing to do, whereas it was perfectly okay to have Eva Herzegova in her lace wonder bra all over billboards everywhere because that looked kind of artificial. I think there was something about the fact that this really looked like we were photographing a girl in her knickers at home that made people think, well, 
these are borderline kind of paedophiliac or pornographic or but we stood by the pictures and so did the company and now those pictures are some of the most collected you know they're in museums across the world I mean to give Corinne who's a wonderful photographer her due you know it was very much her vision that shoot was her vision now there's a quote that we both underlined really heavily while we were reading your book we kind of were putting paragraphs in a google doc and that was the one that um both really resonated with us and it reads i realized not for the last time that there was a deep and potentially troubling gap between the economic realities of those who worked in fashion magazines and the veneer of expensive style we appeared to possess could you expand on that a little bit for those who aren't in the industry yeah i'm pleased you picked up on that because it's one of my favorite lines in the book too and actually it hasn't really been picked up on so um it's the story of our lives. <laughs> I think it's the yeah, story of so yeah. many young women's lives. And I've been surprised that that kind of content is not something that has actually attracted attention. I've had great reviews and everything, but nobody's really written about, about that. And that was to do with, you know, going to Vogue and realizing that the world that I was portraying in that magazine and being editor of it, where I was, as it were, the figurehead, was there was this kind of chasm, even as editor, between that and the reality of my life, let alone what it was like for, you know, the assistants on the magazine, um, who, you know, we, Lucinda, my um, fashion director there, always remembers, you know, her time and like saving up those luncheon vouchers, even when, because she was there before me, and, you know, literally not having enough money really to buy lunch and um, actually giving Mario Testino the luncheon vouchers. He'd always come in at lunchtime because he didn't have any money either. So they'd share out the luncheon vouchers. And I did realize there was this gap and it, it, it's just a fact. And I think it's an interesting thing when you work in, a, in, a, in entertainment, you work in industries. I, I think it's probably the same in movies, for instance where, you know, you're surrounded with a lot of the accoutrements of, of glamour. You know, you have travel, um, you spend time with celebrities, uh, there's a lot of nice clothes around, there's a lot of emphasis on how people look. But actually, most people aren't earning anything like the kind of money to sustain that lifestyle in any way. So, yeah, that was just something that I thought when I was writing the book, something that I... I commented on that I'd noticed right at the beginning of my time at Vogue. I mean, as time went by, I was there for 25 years. Obviously I personally started to earn more money and I began to kind of catch up with the job. Um, but even so, you know, I wasn't taking private jets. <laughs> but it's, it was really interesting to see read you talking about, uh, looking at your wardrobe and wanting to change it to maybe fit what the idea of a Vogue editor would look like as opposed to maybe what your natural style was and then deciding not to do that. Was was there a bit of an identity tangle that came out via clothes during that period? Yeah, I do remember when I first went there and um, it, I guess we must have been going off to the shows and even I, in my not very fashion knowledge way, felt that I probably should have looked like I had some idea of what the kind of fashions were at the moment. Um, 
in a kind of quite concrete way, you know, like whether it was checks were in or short or long or whatever. And I remember going off to Harrods here to buy some clothes and retrospectively coming back with the weirdest collection of things we've had in the magazine before I got there, there'd been a shoot that was kind of Western style shoot. So I remember coming back with this kind of gingham kind of prairie skirt that I'd found that I thought was because I'd seen something like it in my magazine was perhaps fashionable, but of course, actually nobody in fashion was wearing prairie gingham long skirts at all. Um, so I, I had a few kind of real blippy moments like that. But uh, yeah, I, di I did when I, when I got the job, I bought a, a new suit because I thought that was the kind of thing that a Vogue editor would wear. And I didn't normally wear suits. I had been an editor. I was editing GQ magazine. So, you know, it wasn't like I was slumping around in, in jeans and sweaters and T-shirts all the time. But it's just that I wasn't wearing high fashion at all. Um, and then very quickly I decided, and it was a concrete decision, that I just sort of wasn't going to be part of that game because it didn't come naturally to me. And also I'm very competitive and uh, if I don't stand a chance of winning, I don't really want to compete. And I knew, you know, if I was going to set myself up against all these amazing looking women in fashion and try and compete with that, I was always going to come a poor 15th. So um, I decided not to do it. That's a great way to go about it. I feel like I flip in and out of that all the time. I flip out and I just think I'm just going to wear whatever I like and then I go to fashion week and feel <laughs> upset. But it's good to hear someone talk about it because I think there's maybe this idea that it, once you hit a certain level that you just become immune to concern about those things and uh, mm. on a much, much smaller level, obviously, but we just know that we go into these situations like Fashion Week and feel uh, constantly worried that we're not wearing the right thing, that we need to go and panic buy something that we can't afford or whatever, and you've really kind of got to talk yourself out of that because it's not a healthy way yeah, to be. I mean it's very I understand that, though, and I think everybody, you know, I mean, I was, wasn't immune to that, even by the time I left Vogue, that feeling of slightly panicked buying something because, you know, you kind of, it's almost like you want that thing because it it's meant to be a kind of safety thing. Uh, it's a, meant to be a kind of security blanket that you've got the right thing, but actually it has the opposite effect because it's normally the wrong thing and you don't feel good in it and you don't really want to wear it. Mm. So I, you know, I would advise people not to make those kind of purchases, whatever, whatever the occasion, whatever the world. Bad idea. <laughs> um, now the book touches on so many incredible anecdotes in your career, um, including a part you played in the Royal Wedding, which you say is small, but I kind <laughs> of beg to differ. Can you kind of explain for our listeners what that was and how it felt when you realized that the Duchess of Cambridge had chosen a dress that you'd also recommended? Well, when um, Catherine Middleton, as she was then, got engaged, uh, you know, everyone was talking about, to, to Prince William, everyone was talking about, well, what's she going to wear? What's the wedding dress going to be? And one day I got a phone call from somebody in her office saying, you know, would I be prepared to just come in and have an informal chat about, uh, you know, options and things? So 
you know, of course, I jumped at the opportunity. You can imagine. No, I don't think I'll wash my hair that day. Um, <laughs> I um, realized, though, that, you know, it wasn't just going to be shooting the breeze, that it would be helpful if I did a bit of research. So put together pictures of different designers that I thought might be good and got myself acquainted a bit with the bridal market because actually wasn't something I really knew very much about. You know, there are lots of designers who are specifically uh, bridal wedding dress market and, um, you know, toddled along and, sorry about that, and met um, Catherine and I think she was very keen to get opinions, to you know, to canvas opinions and to learn a bit. She's not somebody who's particularly naturally fascinated by the kind of minutiae of the fashion industry. Um, and I think she, wearing fashion and labels and everything is something that she does as part of her, her job, but it's probably not something that she would spend a great deal of time doing if, if she was in another life. And so uh, she, she didn't probably know the work of some of the designers that, um, that I had suggested. And anyway, I went in with, uh, I don't recall, I know I had Vivian Westwood, I know I had Alexander McQueen, I know I had Erdem, pretty sure I would have had Bruce Oldfield in there, possibly Catherine Walker, um, and some of the uh, designers that, do, do bridal wear and um, we talked through them and looked at the pictures and I tried to also show her that you know the way they looked in fashion plates weren't necessarily what they would produce for her because obviously things look quite extreme in a magazine like Vogue and you know a designer who's going to make royal wedding dresses is going to be working to a brief and as we were doing it I realized that the obvious choice was Alexander McQueen um, because as a, as a house, you know, their, um, their craftsmanship is incredible and you would need, a, you would want to, to show uh, British craftsmanship off in terms of the embroidery and the lace and everything. And also they'd always used a lot of, um, I don't know how you describe it, but sort of symbolism really within his work. He'd always, you know, used a lot of, of references within it. So I thought that as a kind of brand, it fitted. But also, sadly, Lee McQueen had, had died quite recently and Sarah Burton had taken over. And I thought she's a very unassuming, very clever, very sensitive woman. And I thought that she would be somebody who would, you know, be, be very um, easy for Catherine to work with uh, because they were obviously going to have to spend a lot of time together. So, you know, I think I said, well, you know, explained all those things, basically. And um, they thanked me for my advice and off I went. And that was the last thing I heard. And then I got an invitation to the wedding. Well, that was so exciting. Come through the letterbox and you get any, anything you get like that, you get this wonderful postmark instead of a stamp on it. It's like a stamp with E-R in red, you know, Royal Mail. And, you know, incredibly heavyweight envelope and everything. It was just properly exciting to have that invitation. And, um, but I didn't know that she was going to wear McQueen until I was actually in the Abbey. 
how the hell do you decide what to wear to that? Oh, far, far, <laughs> yeah. far more difficult. So I wore Christopher Kane and I got Christopher made me something and he made me the most beautiful. It was like a sequin skirt that he'd sort of done in that collection and a really nice, it was like a blue short jacket and um, shell top and the sequin skirt is sort of a kind of cloud color, smoky smoky blue and then I never wear hats or hardly ever wear hats but never wore a hat to a wedding but as I write in the book I realized I had to wear something so I got this beautiful kind of headdress made and yeah no I think I I think I I did good that day on the clothes front wow that's cool so moving kind of post Vogue um you mentioned in the book that most of the profiles that kind of focused on you when you were at Vogue focused on your appearance in a way that kind of hasn't been the case for your predecessor, Edward Enenfil. Do you think that this is a sign that times have changed or do you think it was kind of more just sexism at play? Oh, I don't think it's times have changed. People still write about what women look like. Mm. I just think that they don't make those comments about men. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, other newspaper or magazine editors who are male. I don't think anybody kind of wrote about Graydon Carter. I mean, admittedly, Graydon Carter, when he edited Vanity Fair, he wasn't editing a fashion magazine. But even so, there was a lot of style in it. Nobody kind of said, you know, Graydon wasn't a sample size. Mm. It's pretty depressing (laughs) indictment of our times. We wanted to ask about, obviously, leaving any high-profile job is difficult especially if you've held it for a long time but I think in magazines there's an extra level of your identity becoming tied to that role or to that publication um so can you just talk to us a bit about how you prepared if at all mentally for leaving such a momentous role when you did leave yeah I prepped a lot I prepped a lot I mean uh I thought about it for years obviously you know you're we all think about leaving our jobs or changing our lives all the time but you know I had concretely thought about it for about uh five years and one of the reasons why I I didn't leave earlier was because the centenary was coming along it was a hundred years of vogue and there was going to be a huge amount of fuss about it and I thought well I'm done if I've done all this work and then somebody else is going to be in charge of all of that and that was sort of two years in the prepping so so that kept me there for for longer but I had started to think about it. And every time I thought about it, I couldn't see, I couldn't see how to leave. It was like a, a literally a concrete thing that I couldn't, I'd think about it and then I couldn't see anything. There was nothing there. There was no idea what my life would be or, or what I could do. It wasn't no idea of who I, would, who I would be. I knew I would be me. That wasn't the problem. The problem was what was I going to do with my days and how was I going to earn money? And then we had the centenary, which was 2016, and it was a really big success. And we had a television documentary made about the the magazine, which was, I would say, a qualified success. But anyway, there it was. And a wonderful exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery of 100 Years of Vogue, which was just brilliant. And we had a big uh, festival that year with fantastic speakers and a big gala dinner and Everything. And I kind of realized after that, that life felt a bit flat, just going back to producing, you know, the November issue kind of thing. And, um, but I still didn't think I was going to leave. Um, I was just trying to think of what new things I could do with the magazine, what new initiatives we could, we could do and everything. And then one day, 
I, oh, I know, I rented a flat in the, by the seaside to go to at the weekends. And I think retrospectively that that was a subliminal thing of me trying to see what it was like in a different space. But I had, didn't concretely think that. One day I just woke up and I, it was like a kind of, you know, that eureka moment you never believe people have. Where I saw this kind of, instead of seeing nothing or a sort of black, gloomy space, I literally saw this kind of bright space in front of me. Probably a bit like when you die, people say, you know, there's this blinding light. It was a bit like that. And I thought, hold on a moment. Um, actually, this is the future. You know, this is a future you can have. And you can do all kinds of things. doesn't matter what they are. They're going to be different. And it's going to be the future. And if you stay where you are, all you're doing is sort of contributing to your past. Um, and the moment mm -hmm. I had that idea, then it was very easy to to go ahead and leave. Um, but I was asked to stay for, well, I didn't tell anyone for a couple of months. And then I was asked to stay for six months. So I had quite a long time of knowing I was going to leave. And in that time, I was able to, you know, talk to a lot of people and get my head around a few things that I might do, but, but not much. When I left, I didn't actually have any work. And now, sort of three years on, I do sort of think, that was quite a brave thing to do to make that jump. But it was also, I felt maybe that there just wasn't an option that I knew it was the right thing to do. Yeah. That's a bit rambling, but. No, no, not at no. all. I think it's fascinating. I wonder if the six months was uh, helpful or not, because I kind of almost feel as if when you make a decision like that, maybe you're just ready to go and that having half a year might not be. No, well, again, I say in the book, in retrospect, it would have been a good idea if I'd left earlier because there was a nasty fallout about between when my successor was appointed and after I left. And I think if, if I'd left once somebody had been appointed, all of that would have been much easier for everybody. And, yeah, I would have had a bit less time to... To prep but in retrospect that's I think what what should happen I think once you know I mean lots of times people are appointed and they can't come for various reasons and um, you know they have to work out their notice period or whatever so people do stay in jobs knowing they're going to leave but it's never an easy period because as soon as the world knows you're going to leave your history you know and it's all about who's going to take mm. over so you're just like a kind of placeholder, really. Especially when it's so high profile. Not many people have to deal with leaving a job that the entire world yeah. knows, knows what's going on at the same time. Yeah. It's crazy. But designers do it. And I've seen, you know, again, retrospectively, seeing, you know, with designers who said they were going to leave and didn't leave immediately. I think Phoebe Philo didn't leave Celine immediately. Um, Christopher Bailey didn't leave Burberry immediately. And in a way, you know, it's sort of similar things. You know, you get this thing where then the next person is going to come in and they're going to change everything you did and you're kind of sitting there. It's, it's I think, a complicated time. Um, we wanted to ask a bit, and you touched on this in the book, about how clothes were kind of a vessel to make sense of your new identity after being in such a high power job obviously you were dressing differently how did that kind of express this new identity that you had post Vogue yeah well the first few months for the summer after I left Vogue and I just kind of really flopped around in my holiday clothes you know just like really 
old t-shirts, baggy trousers, had a lot of holiday actually, spent quite a lot of time in a bikini, which then made the headlines as well. Um, that story is that's crazy. We don't even want to dignify totally, it with mm. it. Totally. <laughs> Question, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when I came back, and it sort of really in September kind of started to get on with life, um, I, I think I started to take more joy in my clothes than I had. Not because I had wonderful clothes being at Vogue. You know, I was uh, given big discounts by designers and some clothes were made for me and had access to all the information and everything. But it, they always did seem a bit part of my work. So as soon as clothes weren't part of my work, it was just kind of, when you can play around more. I found myself wearing more makeup as well, which was interesting, you know, that um, I'd always been known at Vogue for not really doing things like having manicures and everything. And suddenly I found myself having a weekly manicure, you know, and really enjoying it because... <laughs> I didn't have to be rushing back to work. I wasn't always thinking about something that I wasn't getting done in the office. And mm. and I wasn't doing it because I had some event. I was just doing it because it was a really nice thing to do. And I felt the same about my clothes that I kind of play around with them more. Maybe I think if you go into an office of 30 odd women, all of whom are kind of obsessed with fashion and all who look really lovely and a lot of whom are a lot younger than you, you know, you kind of like, well, in my case, my feeling was, I, you know, I'm not going to try and engage with this. With you, you know, you all look great, and you do what you do, and I'm going to wear kind of like my my navy skirt and jumper kind of thing, um, and I'm mm -hmm. fine like that. But then, when I was just on my own, I felt more able to mix around sort of pattern and bright colors, and I went back to to wearing quite a lot of things I used to wear even when I was like a student and things. I mean, it's weird. It was the kind of, it was quite an extreme reaction. And now I'm somewhere probably in the middle, <laughs> middle of the two. Um, we, sorry, this is our final question. I feel like we've kept you for a while, but uh, the print landscape has obviously been very impacted by this crisis. Uh, the magazines that we worked for in Australia and New Zealand actually have all ceased printing for now. We still have dozens of young women reaching out to us every week about how to get into magazines and often we don't really know what advice to give. So what's your perspective kind of on the future of print? You see my eyes. Right? I know, nice small question um, to end on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, small question to end yeah. with. But I mean, are you saying, are you saying in with, with what has happened now, because I think my, you know, what I would have said three months ago probably would be slightly different to now because it's very hard mm. to know quite what the outlook's going now, to be yeah. now. And, you know, I, I, I hadn't heard of magazines not printing here, uh, glossy magazines, although I know a few of them have, um, are doing double issues, for instance. But, you know, if, if, um, if there isn't some kind of, radical change i'm not sure that there won't be some magazine casualties in fact i'm sure there will be but my number one thing would say is if you want to work if you want to write in magazine the first thing you've got to do is read great writers in magazines you've got to actually read read the old magazines read read the best journalism read you know really study the good pages and everything so that at least you've got those kind of you've got that knowledge and then when 
you do get an opportunity, you'll kind of have something to aspire to. And no, if you want to do fashion styling, I mean, that will go on. It's going to, it's taking a hit now, but there will be fashion imagery and there will be shoots again. And there will be, even if there are fewer magazines, there are, you know, there is digital. And I, I properly believe that things like print journalism will exist. I don't think huge circulation print journalism is going to exist. And I think even before coronavirus, we were seeing this kind of shift to the idea of kind of niche publications where actually they were able to attract advertising um, because they're so clearly targeted a demographic. And so, you know, I think in a year there will be more opportunities, but I think this is a difficult year. I mean, I have a 25-year-old son myself, and I think in terms of this is kind of a lost year, really, because, you know, if you weren't in a job, it's it's tough to get a job in this environment, impossible, mm. but even coming out of it, I think things will be more restricted. I mean, what do you think? I think the big question is about what the purpose of print media is, and I think when you see print publications that try to replicate what is being done online, it doesn't work. And then when you see print publications that embrace the reason print should exist, so the very best imagery, very curated, very elevated, even if they cut down how often they publish or even if it becomes a biannual or it's about the paper or whatnot, um, I think that's the magazines that are kind of thriving. So it is that interesting time where everyone's finding their feet. I mean, it's interesting in the States that the New Yorker, for instance, is one of their most profitable magazines now. And, um, and you know, you can read online, and they do have online, and they have digital subscriptions. But I still think that most people who want to read what The New Yorker has, and they do the best of the best, you know, that, that mm. physical object filled with page after page of good writing, you know, you don't read it in a day you probably don't read it in a week so you keep you know it's like having a book my um university lecture explained to us that uh there's this psychological phenomenon lean forward versus leaning back and that when you read anything on digital because you're leaning forward the physiological reaction associates it with work stress to-do lists emails Whereas when you lean back, it's all the feelings that you associate with being on holiday, watching a movie at the cinema, being by the beach. So the actual physical experience of reading something in print is entirely different to reading something online. And I think that that's probably... Really interesting. Yeah, a big thing. I've never heard that. Mm, I agree with that. Very cool. We all believe in print. It's going to be okay. It's interesting. How old are you two? 27. I'm 29. Okay. Do you buy print magazines? We do, but sometimes we feel yes, like we're the only Not ones. as much yeah. as I used to, actually. Yeah. I buy, bo- I buy books a lot more than print magazines, which is bad because uh, obviously we both worked in magazines and love magazines, but I'm, I'm like very much, I need a physical book in front of me more so than I need a physical magazine mm. at the moment. Yeah, I don't think... Right now is not a good time for magazines. I bought a whole load of magazines just, you know, in the supermarket the other day and I haven't opened any of them, which is interesting. You know, I have read my books. Mm. I have watched TV. I've gone, you know, spent a ridiculous amount of time on Instagram promoting myself. But, um, 
I haven't actually read the magazine. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. It was such a pleasure. We're, we're... Yeah, well, thanks for asking such good questions. Thanks so much. Take care. Have a wonderful day. Bye. 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 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.